Hello, I am Joel McLeod. I'm Roland Tanner. And welcome to the 905er. It looks like the tide is starting to turn. The Ontario government has announced that on July 16th, large portions of the restrictions placed on businesses due to the pandemic will finally be lifted. While we are starting to look to the future of a COVID-19 in our past, we thought it might be time to take a look back as well. Our fifth episode of this podcast was with Jason Cassis. Jason is the owner and the founder of Equal Parts Hospitality, which includes the Aberdeen Tavern and Knollwood Golf Course, both located in Hamilton. At the time, Jason was optimistic of the fact that we'd get through this pandemic, and we wanted to talk with him and see if he wanted to reevaluate that assertion. As well, we wanted to know what the state of the industry in Hamilton, as well as the rest of Ontario, would be like after a year of the pandemic. We wanted to know how we thought the government handled the pandemic to date and what challenges lie ahead for the industry to get back on its feet. As well, what should the public expect going forward? Now, before we begin the interview, we'd like to encourage you to, well, to become a 905 yourself by joining our Patreon. For only $7 per month, you'll be helping to tell the great stories of the 905. Please click on the link in the show notes to join today. And now on with the show. Well, I'd like to thank uh, Jason Cassis for coming back almost one year later, <laughs> we could say, to the 905er podcast. Jason, you, you were on episode five, one of the very first guests that we had on on the uh, podcast. And I'm gonna, I'm just going to say, since that time, can you give us a summary of how the pandemic has affected your operation uh, so far? Well, that's a heck of a, that's a heck of a start. <laughs> It has affected absolutely every aspect of every operating company we own. If you're an event space, you know, you've been decimated because you can't hold events. If you are a restaurant business, you've had to use the term pivot, truly pivot multiple times over a year and a half. If you are a golf course, you have had, you know, great business, and then we were shut down by the government, and then reopened by the government. It was just an emotional roller coaster. Um, we opened a small hotel type product in the midst of the pandemic that surprisingly went well. Um, so I would say, generally, it's been difficult as anything I've ever imagined navigating through. I'm incredibly fortunate to have a very strong uh, business partner at the restaurant group and a very strong business partner at the golf club and a very strong set of partners in the hotel company that we all relied on one another to get through this. And then ultimately, the staff, I think, um, the employees, the the you know, the lifeblood of the organization, they were the ones who really, really kept us going, kept us focused, kept us, you know, wanting to do better through this thing and, and or survive it, really. When we first chatted, you know, this was kind of when the pandemic was first in its infancy. It just, the restrictions were just, we're just kind of getting used to the idea of, you know, masking and the word pivot and whatnot. And that was the the early summer or midsummer of 2020. You seemed optimistic that that we were going to weather the changes, we we're going to weather this pandemic, and we we're going to come out of it. 
do you still think that that assessment was accurate having gone through a year of of COVID-19? You know, it would be the first time I've been wrong. <laughs> so <laughs> I'll say that uh, maybe I was half right and half wrong in that thinking. And I'll, and I'll explain that. I think the half right is that, you know, we had a very accommodative federal government. And I cannot give them enough credit. Um, perhaps they overstepped, you know, in retrospect a little bit, but who knew? How do you know what's an overstep? How do you know what's an understep, right? So I think they did really well. I think the province, um, you know, could have done a better job ultimately than than what they did um, to keep pushing things forward. Um, and then ultimately the regional government I think our public health department did a really good job of keeping things in check. Um, I think their big challenge now to, to again, you know, that this too will pass and, and getting back to normal, it's really going to be up to public health to really help vaccinate those in the uh, more difficult um, postal codes that have low vaccination rates. Um, those are my thoughts there. The reason why I wanted to have you on this to this episode was because it, the Ontario government announced that on July 16th, this seems that we're good, a lot of those restrictions are finally going to be lifted, such as indoor dining is going to be allowed to resume under some public health guidelines, social distancing guidelines, et cetera. But I mean, that's a, that was a big thing that I know the restaurant and hospitality industry wanted to see uh, uh, come back. We've been hearing, we've heard in the media, not necessarily your operation, but the industry is having some difficulty getting back on its feet, getting, you know, the, the idea of employee, getting employees to come back after a year off. Some employees have gone off to go back to school, found other careers, et cetera, et cetera. You know, can you, maybe can you, you tell us like how prepared is the industry to return back to normal? Like so what are some of the difficulties that you're seeing, uh, not just with you guys, but maybe in the other people in the industry of just now that things are getting back, like what are the, what are the, some of the difficulties that you're facing? Well, the industry is not prepared at all, in my opinion, to reopen full steam ahead this Friday. And keep in mind that despite how it seems or how it looks, we're still throttled back significantly on indoor dining. You're still talking about two meter separation. So if you're a small restaurant, you're still at less than 50% capacity. Right, which really hurts. It's it's mm -hmm. it's a tough decision to reopen in that kind of environment. If you're a big restaurant, say like the Diplomat, it's better. You know, we give lots of people in the Diplomat a two meter spacing. So you know, larger restaurants unfortunately are going to do better just by virtue of space than smaller ones. Certainly for three weeks. Insofar as HR is concerned. I don't like, are you guys hiding all of the restaurant employees in your basements or something? Like I have no idea where the, where everyone is gone, whether mm -hmm. some people are just reluctant to come back to work. You know, we talked about this, you know, maybe it's a bit of the 20%. It's like the 20% of unvaccinated people. Like, are they really anti-vaxxers or are they just nervous or concerned? Maybe mm -hmm. some people are leaving their house, you know, maybe, maybe you have some of that as well. Um, so I don't know. I, I, you know, you know, how does it affect us? I think is the question. And, and the effect is 
we'd love to open seven days a week, lunch and dinner and brunch. And the truth is we, we just don't have enough people to do that coming out of the gate. I hope to get back to that for fall or sooner, but right now it doesn't look that way. So, so right now there's, there's just a shortage of staff is the major challenge that you're, you're kind of facing, even with the, with the restricted numbers? Yes, and it's not just hospitality staff. You're talking wow. about retail staff. It's not just um, the industries that were most affected, oddly enough. It seems uh-huh. to be people looking for people everywhere. So again, I don't know if it's a, I don't know if we undercount the number of people who are still nervous, pandemically speaking, who, if they had an option to collect EI, would continue to stay on EI, not for the wrong reasons. I mean, there's always going to be a few of those people. Don't get me wrong. But for the right reasons where, you know, their mental health is at stake. Maybe they need a little bit of, they need a lift through this to get back on their feet. Maybe they need to see zero COVID in their minds, so to speak. And you wonder if it's also about, because we had some false false dawns along the way. It's like, well, yeah, I'll go back when I know this is for good and I can use it to pay for an apartment or whatever. I don't want to go back and then two weeks later, I'm back to, you know, I, I guess it's that, that ability yeah. to kind of predict the future maybe that we're still lacking. Yeah. yeah that's really interesting. Yeah. They would be prudent given what's happened to the restaurant. I mean, if you're talking about in a restaurant, let's say you're a cook, let's say you're a $20 an hour cook making 20 bucks an hour cooking on a line, you know, at a hotel or, or at a golf course or at a restaurant or somewhere. And, uh, you can make close to that at home, right? right? Or you have the option to offset that by moving back home. Well, why why would you leave that safe environment or that safe, you know, mm-hmm. financial security, so to speak, for something you might lose again and, and may not be able to get back? Mm-hmm. Because there are some really interesting labor law issues that surround this as well. Right. If you refuse to come back to work, you've effectively you know, terminated yourself. It's, it's, there's some crazy laws out there right now. Well, on that note, I mean, I, I've, we followed you on, on social media over the past year, and I've noticed that you're, you have been somewhat critical of the provincial government in how they've, the restrictions and just the kind of course that they've charted on handling the economy and the pandemic. And, you know, I, I want to, I want to ask you just based on the, the criticism that you've seen, uh, or that you, that you've handed out to the provincial government, how confident are you in the in this government being able to safely and effectively reopen the economy? I, you know, you know what I believe in is I believe that, as has been proven, there is some seasonality to this only because of the fact that we all get outside in the summer, right? So I'm not saying the virus is seasonal. I'm saying we're seasonal, right? So we get outside. We're less inside. We're less likely to spread a virus. So COVID is going to go away like it is right now, and and it'll probably return in the fall again. And how the government implements its, oh, COVID is back plan, now what are we going to do? They're going to be in an extremely precarious situation because the feds will have pulled back on subsidy and should, to some degree, with the exception of sectors that are highly affected sectors. Um, But it'll be the province that makes the decision as to whether you become insolvent or not and therefore lose your job because you're 
company went broke. So my confidence level in the provincial government right now, um, based on how they handled the pandemic, is fairly low. Um, I hope that they learned from the first go around that shutting off an entire economy altogether is a bad idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's my; those are my thoughts. It's, it seemed to me that you know their the, the, their intentions were their intentions were good, and their intentions were were very often to help business and to help restaurants in particular. But what they did was counter was actually had the reverse effect to what they were trying to get, and that they opened too too soon and too readily, and then then we had to close down again. Is that is that how you perceived it? Because I know we've had we've spoken to some restaurateurs or uh, who I felt had a had a different feeling or were more like just open up and just deal with it. Whereas, yeah, it just seemed to me that 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 they were doing the worst thing in terms of what you needed by 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 rushing things. Yeah, and stop start is the worst. Right. Like to, to ramp up and to ramp down. You know, an accounting firm moves moves home from their office, plugs in, sets up a home office, and starts. And they don't have to ramp up and ramp down. They did. They do it once. Whereas we have to do it every time. It's so expensive um, to do that. Training. Um, menus, food costing, every like there's so many things, not to mention right now, commodities that we purchase, dairy, uh, meat, all these different things have, have really, well, you know. Well, I remember that back in March, was it with at the start of the third wave, the province came out and said, okay, restaurants reopen. And I know there are a lot of you guys that went out and you bought a ton of inventory because you were told, yeah, Friday we're, you know, Going, you're going at it full throttle. Yay, way to go! And then, like the next week, you're told, uh, "No, guess what? We gotta, we gotta close you back down." You know, that that kind of stuff must must shake your confidence. And just, it is okay for me to pick up the phone and place in an inventory order to my supplier. How does that make you feel as a as the owner, as an entrepreneur, just like to say, "Okay, I can, I can start making plans again." When that was the your the big reaction in the past. Yeah, it was tough. It was, that was, you know, that coincided virtually with the closure of golf courses and playgrounds and everything else. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I apologize in advance for what you read on Twitter. I lost it. Let me tell you, because I I thought, how could, how can they do this? Do they, you know, what information are they getting that we're not getting? Right. When we're watching other countries that are two to three to four to six weeks ahead or behind of us, and we can study them perfectly and know exactly what works and what doesn't work. And why is it that they arrive at these decisions? And the only, the only answer is it has to be political. And was, that's what pissed me off. Were you ever consulted or did you know of anyone in your industry, like a, a, an owner uh, such as yourself, that was consulted by your MPP or the minister, any ministers, to say, "What do you need, or what's you know what what where, where are you at? Where, where were you ever consulted, or anyone in the restaurant industry?" By the we have government? 
we have similar to other industries, we have lobby groups, right? Like we have restaurant associations. We have, mm-hmm. I'm sure there's probably a nightclub association. You know, there's all these right. different associations. So we we did our our best through those associations. Um, some things became very clear in the pandemic. Um, things like the unfair pricing at the LCBO, um, you know, that's a mind boggling one to me. If if one thing comes out of this, it should be that restaurants, like every other business in the world, should be able to buy a wholesale product from a wholesaler. And if right. you're going to treat your retailer and your wholesaler as the same person, you're truly not doing a service to your businesses in, in your province. And so the one thing they could do is they could throttle back the um, you know, the the markup of 71% on wine as an example. Um, that would help a bit, you know, you know, those are some of the things they can do is actually dig into some of their policy city of Hamilton, like Jason, Jason Thorne, Jason Farr, Mayor Eisenberger, um, you know, when they stepped up for the patio thing, like that was just great. I mean, we were literally leading Canada in that regard. Um, you know, I was very proud of our, our counselors and our mayor at that point, well, the same thing can continue to happen with public space. You know, when you when you look at policy, what can we do to make the recovery inexpensive? Why is a business license, you know, I don't know, 500 bucks? Why couldn't it be $400? Let's help these people out for a year or two. You know, let's, let's, it doesn't have to be a gift. It doesn't have to be, a, you know, tack it onto the property taxes in two years. Right. If property taxes at, uh, I don't know, let's pick one. The French are $20,000 a year as an example, right? Well, make them $15,000 a year. Tack five grand two years in a row back on over a decade. Get your money back plus charge maybe 2 or 3% interest on that property would be a hell of a way that, you know, Mayor Eisenberger and, and Councillor Farr, as an example, could table something that would really help. Um, and that's meaningful, let me tell you. Uh, where the province falls down is, or where they could step up, I shouldn't say falls down, where they could step up is to do similar things in the things that they control, such as the LCBO. Because it seems that the way I've interpreted it, uh, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that uh, and you've been you've been put fairly flattering in many ways to all three levels of government, and you're you're. Uh, you know, you're you're definitely not coming from a party perspective. You're you're giving your honest mm. feeling, yeah. and you've been critical where criticism is needed, and 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 fair where fairness. Uh, so it, it's a very it's good to hear those positive things because it's so easy in our in what we do to always harp on the negative. Um, however, I mean, I, I felt that, and and kind of what you're saying is, you know, the federal government did a good job, and kind of what the federal government could do was write checks, and and yeah. by and large with this. That, that's their job and they did it. They wrote checks. Yeah. And the province had a much tougher job and then it too could write checks if it wanted to, um, but they didn't. But whether well, we're trying to, it certainly seemed to me that they were trying to avoid writing checks. They wrote a few, um, but whether you got them or not is the question, whether you qualified. Right. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it was so easy for, for, you know, the various things that the federal government brought in that came in quickly and it was like, you know, you get it. Everybody gets it, kind of thing. Uh, what I mean, yeah. You mentioned the LCBO. That's a really good point. Of the kind of you know, the, the, these are legislative changes that could be made. 
it costs kind of nothing up, up front. I mean, uh, what else should the province have been doing, do you think? Without, And I'm not wanting to single them out for criticism or anything, but I, I do feel that maybe they've been the least imaginative in, in how they've dealt with the challenges maybe. Um, so, you know, in addition to the LCBO, what, what other things do you think they should have been looking at? Well, you know, let me say this. They had the hardest job, right? So I'll give them that. My gosh, they're the ones who had to make up the rules that ended up in bylaw in all of our cities, right? That's a tough, that's kind of like damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of job, right? You're going to get criticized. And we all did. And some of us hated it and some of us loved it. What can they do going forward now is they can eliminate red tape in every way, shape, or form. And I'm not talking about MZOs for developers and things like that. That is not going to help a local restaurant. That is not going to help Johnny who owns a shoe store or Sally who owns a bakery, right? That is not going to move their needle. What we need is a true grassroots approach to help. I think a lot of it can be done regionally through tourism associations. I think a lot could be done through local BIAs. BIAs are probably the most underappreciated, underfunded thing that we have going for small business in the province. The amount of work that they do relative to the size of budget that they have is remarkable. So for the province to finally recognize a mechanism or a way to fund these um, you know, these little agencies throughout cities throughout the province would be a huge step forward to helping directly helping small business. Without our, you know, without our association downtown BIA, we would never have been able to light up King William the way we did. Uh, I was going to say, I, I want to touch base on a point that you made a little while back about employees kind of being scared to come back into the, into the workplace. Uh, because I, I, I would argue that fear of coming back into restaurants and and hospitality uh, industry centers isn't just for employees. I think there's a bit of a trepidation in the public at large. Uh, I know for a fact, like speaking with my wife, there's after a year of kind of avoiding going into restaurants to all of a sudden say, okay, now we can go back in. I mean, it, it, it's a big change for some people. I know that there's many, many people who are itching to go back in a minute, July 16th, I'm sure you're going to have a lineup at your doors and that's good. Good, good for you guys. But how do you reach out to the other, you know, the other por portion of the public that used to go out for, to eat and drink, but are now kind of conditioned to second guess that impulse. And I'm wondering how, how does the industry overcome that to not just instill confidence in your, your brand, but kind of the, the, the concept of dining out again. Well, that, and, that, yeah, that is a challenge. That is a challenge right now for a couple of reasons. You have a statistical challenge right now. Right now in the city of Hamilton, as an example, which looks very much like every other city in the province, less than 20% of the workforce has returned to the towers. Well, that's lunch, period. Right. That's right, your right. entire lunch crowd, right? So- all the suits are missing. 80% of the suits are missing, right? And they're the spenders at lunch. 80% of the people who might join a suit, hey, meet me after work. Hey, let's meet me for lunch um, to their son or to their wife or their husband or their partner or whatever. 
they're not coming because they're not there to invite them, right? Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Your birthday celebration at the office, your retirement party at the office is missing because 80% of you are missing. All of that is missing. So it is a huge issue, which will only come with the exit of the pandemic. And that's going to take some time for the recovery. Now, New York City, I've been very closely watching New York City um, because it's a canary in the coal mine. And so far, they are getting now north of 20% of people returning to the office. It's, it's, it's robust again. Um, tourism has started to recover, you know, things like that. So when you start getting Pearl Jam concerts again, and when you start to get those things, that's what will feel good, you know, about dining downtown and getting back into the restaurants. Like, well, we've gone to the concert with 30,000 people. We should probably go out for dinner, right? Right, So there's that side of it. The other side of it is, yeah, there's a thawing out period like you wouldn't believe. We noticed it when patios opened. People were not climbing all over themselves to go to a patio um they warmed up eventually and now it rained now it's just constantly raining you know it's you know you can't we can't get right this year with the reopen let me tell you between the government and the weather that's true it was a good so the weather was good last year and it's been kind of i mean yeah i haven't been on a patio yet i have to admit uh i have been to a restaurant once in the last year um and it was during indoor dining uh and it was uh that's the one time I've I've been uh, inside somewhere, um, which is a very strange experience. And I felt guilty while I was doing it, even though I was abiding by all the rules uh, that were in place in that time. Um, so it, it is kind of a, it is a challenge, much as I, I certainly have been sort of craving that um, social interaction of going out with friends and, you know, having a, like it used to be there's still a, a kind of mental block somewhat there that, that I admit I'm kind of feeling. I don't trust those vaccinations yet. And, you know, uh, I mean, I do trust them completely. I don't want to give the wrong impression, but it's, it's an interesting kind of mental exercise. That I think we're, we're, we're all kind of going through, which is a barrier for you that, that you need to overcome. Now you mentioned a couple of things. I mean, one of the, two of the things or the thing about you that certainly has been very impressive is is the sort of innovation that you've done during the course of this year that that, that these challenges have come along and 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 no point have you um kind of said well we're just going to sit this out and hope that we're still here when it finishes i mean you so you you were before the phrase ghost kitchen even existed we were speaking to you because you had uh, you were experimenting with with um this uh concept of of using uh kitchens to cook restaurant food for for takeout and then you also mentioned uh experiment with with a hotel which is astonishingly because it's like well no one's traveling right now what made you think you could uh, start a hotel <laughs> so first of all how did the ghost kitchen uh, sort of concept go and do you think is that something that that's going to survive the pandemic or just go away naturally no i i think that goes away right Our experience was, it was great when you were terrified and you wouldn't leave your house and you were so sick of your own food that you were just, you wanted to eat restaurant quality food. You didn't really want to pay restaurant prices. So there's an option, right? Yeah. It was something. Mama Rosa was a a hit. And then we shut it because we, (laughs) as soon as patios opened or dining reopened, it died very quickly, Right. right? It went from you know, X number of sales per day down to nothing. So we think, well, we'll shut it until everyone gets shut back in again. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, so that's what we did. I don't think that, I mean, it, it can survive. That can happen. I think more like meal type of convenience delivery will happen more than restaurant food being delivered from a ghost kitchen. You'll still have a bit of that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the hotel um, is definitely a success story. We're we're in the midst of a capital raise right now, and we're going to be opening six locations throughout Ontario. So wow. it has absolutely blossomed. It's made in Hamilton. Um, first location in Waterloo. It's called uh, the Laundry Rooms and um, laundryrooms.ca and uh, the laundryrooms.ca. And it's done really well. We're about to launch something really interesting as well because part of our model is to do capital light and diversify away from restaurant and event spaces and golf courses. We're launching something called Winebox. So shop at winebox.ca. We're trying to um, take all of the small lot farms and farmers around the world and give them a platform to sell their wine on and be delivered to Ontarians that would never touch the retail floor of the LCDO. <clears throat> so all the great $17 Chiantis that you've tasted probably in a wine by the glass at a restaurant that you probably paid $12 a glass for, mm-hmm. we'd like to sell direct to consumer. So that bottle, you know, that that $17 bottle of Chianti is, is our innovative way of helping out the the small guy and girl in the, you know, through the pandemic by putting all of these small lot farms in one website and then distributing it. Is that, is that like Ontario centric uh, wineries or like, you know, global, global. Okay. It's global. So we've got a bunch of wine agencies looking for really interesting and unique small lot farms, 50 acres and under type places, Um, places that have really unique stories or, or burdens that were burdened in, in during COVID or still are burdened during COVID, um, you know, again, things that the LCBO could never touch because they have too many stores. I've, and I've, this is something you, you, you're you allowed to do. I mean, this is what, I'm my profound ignorance of, 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 yeah. uh, of the whole industry here, but you can do this. I, I wouldn't have thought you could. Well, if you're a wine importer, you can do it, right? So if you work with wine importers and then you're okay. able to deliver, you're able to deliver wines and you have restaurants, it's the perfect storm of being being able to. It's technically not competing with the LCBO in the sense that it's um, it flies under the radar of you know of what would be. Um, you're not opening a retail shop, if you will. See, yeah. that's something that I, I'm excited to see kind of carry on post COVID because I've. I'll be honest. I'm, I don't miss going into stores to browse. I just like I'm, I've never liked it. I just like going be like I want this. Click deliver. Uh, to my to my door, and that was the one thing I, I liked. I, I've always wondered, like, why doesn't the LCBO get in on this? You know, we've seen we see in the states, there's so many you know wine subscription services, and you know the the wine, the wine the wine online wine wine ordering that you know you click and you fill out your profile and what your taste selection is like, and they curate different like these smaller known wineries to you. And I was like, why doesn't why can't we get that in Canada? And I always assume there's some bureaucratic. What, what is it about a monopoly that makes them slow to innovate? What is it about a dictatorship that removes one's freedom? I don't know. Well, that, that, that was the thing. I was like, why? I would love to, you know, and you could throw on, I don't, I don't know, why does the LCBO do that? You know, you could throw on some Ontario, some of the smaller Niagara uh, Peninsula 
wineries and throw that on. So I'm, I'm, I, it's I'd be coming. curious to see how that works. It's coming. It's, it's, it's coming. It's not coming to the LCBO. It's coming to independence. That's one thing that I can count on this government for it would appear. And that's alcohol reform in the province of Ontario. It's not reforming fast enough, but hopefully the pandemic gives it a push. On, well, on, on that note, like where you know everybody's talking about this return to normal, and I'm like, you know, kind of normal is what got us here. Do we really want to go back that way? Um, but I'm wondering, as the uh, the hospitality industry, like, is that a reality? Are we expecting to go back to the way things were prior to March 2020, or are you guys preparing for a kind of providing a new experience going forward? You know my, of- I, I, sorry, my, you know my fear about that statement is that it actually returns to something that looks like the 80s. Do you remember in Ferris Bueller's Day Off when they walked into the fancy restaurant and they had the maitre d' and the guy was a dick, right? (laughs) Yes. Right, that guy? Yeah, 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 yeah. I feel like economically speaking, rents, labor costs, food costs, everything else, we're going to get this divergence between super high-end restaurants and then basically to-go joints. And that, that 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 wonderful in between that we've had mm-hmm, mm-hmm. might disappear to some degree, which was a lot of what happened in the eighties. Remember, in the eighties, or maybe in your case, the nineties, you go out yeah. with your parents, and you either went to like, you know, a down and dirty kind of place and ate some fried chicken or a fish fry or something like that, fish and chips, or you you know, had to sit upright and don't play with your radio and put your Walkman away. Right? I, I, re- I remember that and it was, uh, yeah, Walkman. Wow, you really dated me there. <laughs> but I, I remember, yeah, growing up, you kind of had your fast food joints, um, like your McDonald's, Burger King's and whatnot. Then you had your chain restaurants and the big one was always like, you know, your Eastside Mario's or Swiss Chalet. And then you had like kind of your niche five-star high-end you know, you you got you wore your suit and tie to go to those restaurants, and you're right. I, I you know, the 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 kind of idea, the entrepreneur who says, "No, I want to make my my food my way, and I don't I don't want the stuffiness, but you know, I don't have I don't want to be, be just pouring stuff out of a jar onto a plate either." I'm afraid that market leaves. That's my yeah? concern. How how could people prevent that from happening? Like just because there are other people saying like my favorite joint. No, don't take away my my favorite uh, uh, Italian r- restaurant. It's on the corner. You know, where I don't want it to go. How do I how do I keep it from sticking around? Or um, start from going away. I think that that's going to come down to the landlord and the the velocity of, of the returning diner. You know, how quickly does the diner return? If the diner returns and doesn't hide in the suburbs of Stony Creek or Ancaster or you know Bimbrook or something, and they mm-hmm. end up in back downtown and using downtown as a, you know, the way a downtown is supposed to be used as an entertainment facility. When it gets used again as an entertainment facility, that place has a, has a chance to thrive. And that's typically where those places exist. Well, Joel and I were talking a few months ago now about this kind of dream of a, of a post-commuter world where that maybe out of COVID becomes comes this world where we don't all spend half our lives in cars going to work in another city anymore. We get to spend more time with our families. And because of that, we also have an extra two hours a day when we could be walking downtown to a restaurant and eating together. Now, that sounds like a fantastic uh, theory. Do you think 
that can become I mean, do you think that's if you, if you lose your business trade, do you think it could be made up by by a by a changing kind of family trade, if you like? The people who used to have meals with their colleagues will now have more time um, to eat on their own, if you like, or eat with their family. That's possible. I mean, time time and sales changed during the pandemic. So, and if you're a Starbucks drive-through or you're the French, um, they changed for both of them. So at the French. When we typically would, you know, open the door at 1130, by 12 o'clock, the place was full every mm-hmm. seat for lunch. We couldn't get a table sometimes until 1 o'clock or 1.30 at the French during the pandemic, when you could still dine in, right? Yeah. Right. That yeah. part of the pandemic. Um, 3.30, 3 o'clock, peak. Like, that was crazy busy. People drinking and having fun and almost being European, work in the morning and just laugh all afternoon or something. I think that's how the Europeans do it. So, and the Starbucks drive through same thing. They couldn't get a car at 8 a.m., but they were packed at 10.30, 11 o'clock. Right. It's like people work from home, said, I got to get out of the house. I'm going to go to a drive through and get a coffee. Right, 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 right. Right? I did it myself. I, I mean, it was great. It was like, I felt like I went somewhere, you know, <laughs> like, you know, to the stucco place. <laughs> well maybe that's what we're talking about is just kind of a change in lifestyle because i know a lot of people are not keen on returning to the office they they've they rather like um you know staying at home working from home they're seeing their family more often but i do know that they miss dining out they, they miss that you know there, and there is something about saying okay can i meet you at a, at this place we'll have lunch together talk business and you know the kind of, I just need to get out. And if the idea of I need to get out is I'm going to a restaurant, you know that that's a good thing, isn't it for for the for the industry? Is that yeah? Come on in, come on in, get out of the house, have a have a sandwich, have a beer, or or whatever. Maybe it's too early to tell that we're we're changing that that those social norms, I guess, of uh, of how our workday is supposed to operate. Yeah, there's and there's cause and effect too, right? Like, I was in a building the other day. You know, the building next to Jackson Square, heading east on King. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, heading west on King. It's a tower. It's got an atrium, and there's nothing in it at all. It's empty. It's vacant. It's all commercial. Well, if I were that landlord and I couldn't fill that space with workers before the pandemic, and now I definitely am not going to be able to fill that space. With workers after the pandemic, why not approach the city and say, "You guys have a, you guys have an affordable housing issue right now. Why don't you guys pay me forty, oh, fifty boy. grand a suite, and why don't we convert this commercial to affordable housing? And let's get more people in the core or geared to income. It doesn't necessarily just have to be like low rent subsidized. There's lots of people who make, you know, fifty grand a year that can't afford." housing properly right now, right? right? Usually if they're on their own. So why not gear it to income and solve both issues, low low income housing and geared to income housing, right? Jason, Jason stop exactly making that. sense. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but we, we discussed exact ideas. Like his, here could be potentially your, your, your fix for the entire affordable housing problem in that if we never go from 20% back to anything close to 100% of those people who used to work in offices, that, hey, all these empty space can be used now. And what a way to revolutionize downtowns in a, in a different way. And that you just have more people living there 
who just come right out and want to go to a restaurant because it's on their doorstep. I mean, it seems too good to be true. These kind of, I mean, I imagine these these fantastic things all falling into a place in 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 ten minutes. Of course, they probably take years to do. And zoning means that well, this is a commercial space, so we can't have people living in it. Fire this that yeah. yeah. Well, if they really um, want to try, they will. I would love to see. I, I've. I literally, Joel and I have spoken about it. You've spoken about it now. I have not heard anybody at any level of government talk about it yet. And I would love to hear someone at least moot, you know, put the idea out there. Is this something that could maybe work? Because um, uh, it seems like, well, it seems like an obvious, you know, as, as these patterns change, we need space. It doesn't matter what the space is used for. If it's not being used for offices, then there's another use we can be putting it to, you know? Mm-hmm. Anyway, these are all great ideas. <laughs> we're, we're, we're out of our pay grade, I guess, on uh, coming up <laughs> with these ideas here. Um, yeah, I, you know what? I see we're coming up on, on the 40-minute mark of this conversation, so I think we're just going to wrap it up uh, on there. Uh, Jason, thanks for coming on and uh, and sharing our your experience over the, over the pandemic with us, and I'm hoping that summer of 2021 is the start of uh the the climate out of this uh out of this mess yeah i hope to be in a better mood next time i'm on if you'll have me back (laughs) (laughs) you're remarkably cheerful given the year you've just been through i think so uh uh, all credit for that yeah thanks appreciate it That's it for this episode of the 905er. Thank you for listening. As always, you can send us your feedback, thoughts, and concerns, or ideas for future episodes to our email, info at 905er.ca. We'd love to hear from you. You can help us keep the 905er going by financially supporting us through Patreon as well as PayPal. Visit us at 905er.ca and click on the support tab. As well, links are in the show notes for your convenience. Lastly, you can find us on social media. Search for the underscore 905er on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. So long for now. See you next time. the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app.